If you happen to be visiting with us this morning and you've not been here previous weeks, we are in the middle of a sermon series on the book of Romans. Two weeks ago, Pastor Matt spoke to us about how being a Christian is not about trying harder to be a good person. It's about something that God does for us that we can't do for ourselves. And then last week, our Father Kevin um, spoke to us of this beautiful message that Jesus can set us free from deeply entrenched patterns of sin and hurt in our lives. Today, I am making the big switch in Paul's um, thinking and addressing what he has to tell us in Romans 8. Um, This is important. It's really a critical shift in the vision of salvation that he unfolds for us in the book of Romans. He spent a lot of time in the uh, seven chapters leading up to this really speaking about the individual human being and how we enter into the salvation that God has for us, how we receive the forgiveness of sins, how we receive new life. But now he wants to lift our eyes up to something that is bigger than us, that exceeds and excels our personal longings and yearnings for salvation. I think it's something that we need to hear more than we realize. We are in a culture that is very individualized. Um, For quite some time, people have been almost obsessed with their spiritual um, state of being, with where they are, how they can advance themselves. We live in like a self-help culture, and there's a way that salvation can seem like just sort of the the Christian version of self-help. But over time, that can get a little boring. I don't know if you've ever um, been in a position where you realize all of a sudden, you know what, I think about myself, I talk about myself, I talk to other people about myself, I want them to talk about me. Um, You know, it's getting a little boring. Um, I once uh, talked to a uh, psychiatrist and he had this interesting advice. He said he, he knew when one of his patients was finished with, a thera- with working with a particular therapist because um, the person would say to them, you know what, I am just sick of talking about myself. And he would say, oh good, I think you're getting better, right? Well, there should be a way that for us as Christians that we get to this point where we're really sick and tired and bored of analyzing ourselves, trying to figure out where we stand, um, with God and the hope of our individual salvation. Are we going to heaven or not? We feel like we kind of have that settled. And the Christian life can start to seem a little humdrum. It, it's kind of hard to admit that, I think, where you say, you know what? I actually find the Christian life a little dull. You know, perhaps I need to pick up a more interesting hobby, um, something that will really be interesting and engaging to me. If you've ever felt that and felt a little bit guilty, perhaps, Paul has really good news for you. That there's a lot more to it than our individual salvation. He has a cosmic, gigantic plan for all of creation. The trajectory of your salvation is only a little part of something that is grand and huge and satisfies our ultimate longings for fulfillment, 
for a resolution of the story of the world that doesn't end in tragedy, but ends in triumph. That we are indeed in part of, in a, in a divine comedy and not in a tragedy. And so let's look with uh, Paul at this grand scheme for salvation, not just for ourselves, but for the whole world, for all of creation. Um, I want to help us think about it in um, two ways. One, what is it we're waiting for? And I'd like to think about it as the unveiling of a will, the last will and testament of the master and maker of the universe. Uh, is about to be read. Paul's about to read it to us. What's in it? What do we have to expect? And then secondly, what do we do while we're waiting? We've heard the will read, but we don't see it realized yet. What do we do and what is God doing during this time of waiting? Um, let's jump into this important image that um, Paul brings up you know, beginning in verse 17. He, he speaks about us being heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. This is his like main metaphor here. Let me unpack um, those two elements um, first of all. He says we are heirs of God. And he just passes right by it as though we would understand this. What, he is, what he's evoking is an Old Testament understanding of the inheritance of the Levi, of the priestly caste. When all the tribes get their portion of God's holy promises, each one gets a different region uh, with different resources in it, but the Levites, they don't get a portion of land. They are given the Lord himself as their portion. And this is the first image that Paul is evoking here for us, that we are heirs of God, of God himself, that God is actually giving himself to us. And he's inviting us into a relationship that is far and beyond anything that we could hope for or imagine in and of ourselves, because it actually springs out of the Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in this perfect and beautiful dynamic relationship of love, the whole basis upon which scripture teaches God is love. The Lord invites us into that circle, into that fellowship of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit so that we actually receive not just things from God, but we receive God himself. He is our portion. And he says, Paul says, that we are uh, fellow heirs with Christ. Um, this is uh, something I think actually is a little difficult to get our eyes around. Um, because, of course, in order to figure that out, we have to say, well, what will Christ inherit? What is his inheritance? We get little glimpses of this in Scripture, that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord that creation itself will become subject to him, that the whole world is his inheritance. And we are becoming heirs with him of that whole inheritance. How can that be? How can that be that we are fellow heirs with Christ? 
The phrase that I think jumps out here is that we are given a spirit of adoption by which we can cry out, Abba, Father. It's that same spirit of adoption that allows us to look at Jesus as friend, as companion, as brother, as fellow heir of the kingdom of God. Um, today, as I was preparing um, for this message, I felt very strongly that there, for some of us, uh, for some of you here today, there's a need to know that you were beloved of God, that you belong to God, that you need this spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father. This concept was brought home to me uh, really powerfully uh, in the last few years. We have friends um, that live a few doors down from us, lovely Christian family, and they had three children. And when they were at the point, similar to the point I'm at now, my daughter will be a senior in high school, um, their oldest one had just gone to college, their youngest one was in high school, and it, you know, for me, I'm like starting to imagine empty nesting. They decided, let's adopt, let's start all over. It was so fun raising this family, let's have another one. And so they went into a process of becoming um, certified to foster and adopt. And initially they had their mind set on uh, the sibling set from the Appalachian region of the Carolinas and it looked like everything was gonna work out and then it just fell through. It was very disappointing for them. So um, a local agency here said, hey, you know, you went through all this trouble to be certified and there's these three boys from right around here. They live right here in DuPage County. Would you be willing to foster them? So they decided, you know what, this is it. We're not gonna worry about those Appalachian boys these are the children that God has brought to us, and God willing, we will walk this situation through all the way to adoption. They already knew it was very unlikely that the children would ever be uh, returned to their natural parents. It was a long process. It was like a three-year process. But something I found very curious um, as we were getting to know these boys is that the boys would, inter would address our friends by their first names, Jeff and Brenda. I'm like, calls their parents by their first names, you know, like, that's like kind of weird. And I, well, I mean, I knew this family was not like super progressive, you know, oh, don't worry about formalities, just call us Jeff and Brenda. I, know, I knew that was not in their heart. What was really in their heart was they wanted these children to actually feel that they were loved, that they belonged, that this was a permanent situation for them. They were ready to wait for those kids to spontaneously call them mom and dad. It was so beautiful the last time I was with them. All three of the little guys called my friends mom and dad. They had the spirit of adoption. They had received it. They totally accepted the love. They were not worried about, um, you know, getting shooed off into another foster family or being told, you know, you're just, your needs are a little too great for us. We'll have to find another family. This was not a financial arrangement where our friends were pleased because they were getting X number of dollars amount uh, every month for foster children. No, they belonged. They had that spirit of adoption. And it wasn't because of something the kids did. It was because of what the parents did. It was the wooing, the constant, consistent love. And God does that for us. He doesn't want us to call him Abba Father, Daddy Father, because we think we like owe him something. 
Well, seeing as you made such a great sacrifice for me and, you know, suffered and all that, you know, the least I could do is call you daddy if you want me to. No, that's not how he looks at us. He wants that cry to come up from deep within our hearts, Abba Father. And Paul says, this is a gift of the Holy Spirit. So if you don't have that, if for you, you think, well, you know, maybe when I was a teenager in middle school, I once was at this camp and I had this experience and I'm pretty sure I signed on the dotted line, you know, like Jesus paid the price, I am a sinner. I can have my sins forgiven if I accept the sacrifice, which of course I would want to because it would be a fool not to. Um, so yes, indeed, I will sign on the bottom line. And it's almost as though it's like a contract that we can sign with God. You file it away in the bottom you know, floor of your house in a drawer somewhere. I don't know if any of you have aging parents, but at some point you get this little talking to. Honey, if something should ever happen to me, my will is in the bottom drawer. You know, it's almost like that's our relationship with God. It's this paper that we file away somewhere. That's not the spirit of adoption. He wants us to know in the now that we are loved and cherished by God. So what is it that we are heirs with Christ, our brother? Um, at the end of history, all things will be submitted to Christ. And Paul tells us that we mysteriously have a part in God's, God's cosmic plan to redeem all of creation. In verse 9, it says, Creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. There's a way that the fall of Adam and Eve impacts not just human beings' relationship with God, but all of creation suffers this, this painful state. Paul calls it futility here. It's longing for, for something new. It's longing to be remade in the same way that we ourselves are waiting to be remade. Um, I think we have little flashes of intuition about the healing of nature um, from time to time. Um, this week, I spent a couple of days in uh, northern Illinois in a really beautiful wooded area. I didn't talk to a human being for several days. It was really awesome. And um, at one point I was taking a walk um, and I turned around a corner and there was this beautiful doe standing there looking at me with her beautiful triangular face, her eyes and her nose staring right at me. And I stopped dead in my tracks to stare at her. And I like didn't want to break the moment, you know, I didn't want to lose the moment. I wanted to just stay there and keep gazing into the eyes of that deer. And I, for a moment, thought, wow, wouldn't it be great if deers were like dogs? And she would just run up to me and I could like scratch her behind the ears and give her a big hug around that beautiful neck. What is that longing? It's a longing, it's this beautiful longing that has been sent into our hearts by God. And I think even into the deer, she was as curious about me as I was about her. Because we have these little foretastes of harmony of the new creation, of the new heavens and the new earth, when the lion lays down with the lamb. Creation is waiting, longing for that. And it will happen as we, as human beings, step into the salvation that God has for us. It's, 
one important note here, the creation is not just um, nature, it's not just the forests, um, it's not just the endangered species, as much as those things are uh, precious to God, but creation is all that is made, even those things that are derivative, human culture. Um, one of the expressions of the Great Commission, Jesus says, go and preach the gospel to all creation. Um, does that mean, you know, go to the zoos and proclaim the gospel to the bears? Um, probably not. <laughs> but all creation, meaning all of human society, all of culture, is waiting, is longing for this unveiling of the sons and daughters of God. Uh, in every culture is this desire for a happy ending, not for a tragedy, but for a comedy, for a divine comedy. And so that is his, his will. That's the unveiling of this last will and testament of God the Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. This is his last will and testament that he reveals to us. And I think we long for it. I think we're thirsty for it. But what do we do while we wait? That's what the rest of this passage is about. What do we do while we wait? Um, if you ever try to teach on this passage, you will notice that Paul goes in circles. He doesn't make this really super clear but he gives us his best attempt to unveil and to unpack to us what it is like, what is it like that we wait. He makes uh, a couple of observations. Um, he tells us that creation is groaning, that we are groaning, and that the spirit is groaning. So what do we do while we wait? We do a lot of groaning not really very helpful, right? Wouldn't it be nice if he would give us just like three steps, you know, that would like, oh, I know exactly what to do between now and the end of the age. Um, but he asks us to enter into his groaning, into his passion, into his mission, his vision for the world and for all of creation. So let me unpack that for you just a little bit. Um, we've spoken already of the groan of creation, waiting to be set free from its bondage to corruption. And verse 23 and 24 says we are groaning. He says we're groaning, waiting for our full adoption as sons and daughters of God. This is classic Paul, right? He tells us in the beginning of the passage, we have received the spirit of adoption, and then he tells us later, we are waiting to be adopted. There's this always this now but not yet part of what it means to be adopted. But there's also, in a particular um, way in this passage, a focus on, um, on the body and the way that our bodies, this flesh and blood, is part of creation. That the longing that we have is, is a physical longing as well as an emotional or psychological longing. Um, in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says, in this tent we groan, meaning that our bodies, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. 
That longing for the redemption of our bodies is part of what we do while we're waiting. It's part of this groaning that we invite the Holy Spirit into. Uh, Paul is very clear in the passage right before this, in um, the earlier part of Romans 8, that the Spirit of God is in our bodies, that he who raised Christ from the dead is in our bodies, that there's a principle of resurrection life at work in our bodies that we're still waiting for. Um, what happened to Christ in his resurrection will happen to us. He's the firstborn of many brothers. And we too will put on immortality. We will be given new bodies. And in time, also creation will be given its fullest expression. Um, I love um, C.S. Lewis. He tries so hard to unpack this for us, especially in his little book, uh, The Last Battle, where it seems in our mind that there should be some kind of a destruction of our bodies or destruction of nature, but it isn't in fact destroyed, it's changed, it's remade. Jesus' body is not destroyed, it's remade, it's reconstituted by the power of the Holy Spirit. So creation is groaning, um, we are groaning, and the Holy Spirit is groaning. Uh, this, is, this is fascinating, that he, he is interceding for us according to the will of God. That the Spirit of God is always groaning. Um, what does that mean? Paul makes it very clear that it, there's a mysterious way in which the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. He prays for us. Um, Hebrews says that Christ ever lives to make intercession for us. The book of Revelation suggests that the angels intercede for us, that the saints intercede for us according uh, to the will of God. This is amazing because it means while we're groaning with a sense of unfulfilled um, longing, the Holy Spirit is groaning with an idea of what is yet to come. It's a fascinating passage here about predestination. It doesn't mean are you chosen or not chosen? It means, what is the determined path that God has for us? That if we would suffer with him, we would also be glorified with him. Um, how is he praying? How is the Spirit praying? How is Christ interceding for us? Paul gives us um, a really important clue here. Verse 26, the Spirit helps us in our weakness that we might suffer with Christ in order that we might be glorified with him. You can't get around suffering in this passage. Suffering, glorification, always connected. Why do we need to be, why do we need prayer when we're suffering? Uh, because God intends something different for our suffering. I think there's a lot of what I, I would call wasted suffering in the world. Um, it, it seems to serve no purpose. There is no good that apparently comes from it. And that's because without the intercession of God, without the work of the Holy Spirit, um, suffering does not naturally have a positive benefit for us. Um, sometimes I think uh, when we hear, you know, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, neither heights nor depths or whatever, it's easy to almost think of this in terms of some kind of like naive optimism about the world. Um, 
Grandma got run over by the reindeer coming home from our house on Christmas Eve. But you know what? It's all probably for the best because, you know, that turkey was so dry, she would have been so disappointed. Okay? That is not good news at all. Um, that is just kind of a naive sort of optimism. That's not what Paul is talking about here. He's not just saying, you know, put on a happy face, people. God loves you. He wants to enter into our suffering and invite us to enter into his suffering. Um, and this is the key here in this passage. It's that we might suffer with him. I often will have someone come into my office who is suffering in a very extraordinary way. I'm sometimes absolutely speechless. You know, and that's actually appropriate. You shouldn't actually get platitudes from your pastor, right, when you're suffering. But what we, what we can do is to pray. I often will anoint them with oil and say, Lord, would you sanctify this suffering? Would you make it holy? Would you make it possible for this man or this woman to enter into deeper fellowship with Jesus? Through this suffering, may they come to know Jesus in a way they never could have if they hadn't suffered. Is there a way to join your suffering with Christ's suffering? Because this is how it's redeemed. And it's very important when we're thinking about uh, resurrection to realize that suffering is actually a part of this. Suffering is part of what is redeemed. Um, not, re not erased, but redeemed. Um, it's fascinating to me that when Jesus is uh, risen from the dead, that he still has these wounds. He still has these scars. You know, he tells Thomas, put your hand in my side. If I was in charge of the resurrection, I would have a different plan. I would say, you know, you should really probably, when you receive your new body, you should look like you did at 21. It should be perfect. Uh, recently, Kevin and Karen came back from a family visit and they came home with this photograph of me that included me like 20 years ago. I was like, wow, <laughs> there have been some changes. <laughs> uh, I was once very offended when um, a, a rather uh, well-known person, uh, uh, Mark was introducing me to this person and um, she said, it's so nice to meet your little wife. And I was like, little wife? nobody's little wife and then I saw that picture I was like you know what I was my husband's little wife <laughs> not anymore but uh, I was once upon a time but you know if I was in charge of the resurrection I'd like I want to look like that you know um, I wouldn't want there to be any marks in my soul or my body that would indicate that I suffered but that's not what resurrection looks like for the Christian. Your wounds, your suffering, it all matters to God. How will we recognize the martyrs when we meet them in heaven? Probably because there'll be some indication on their body of how they suffered. Oh, you're the one that was burned at the stake. I don't know how that's going to look, you know. But the scars are still there because they matter, they're part of our identity, they're part of how we become identified to God um, and for God. The Holy Spirit has to help us 
Our sufferings will crush us if we don't invite the Lord into them. Um, the Holy Spirit is interceding for us so that everything in our lives, individually and corporately as the body of Christ, will work together for good, that we might be conformed to the image of Christ, share in his resurrection, take our part in the redemption of all creation. So how do we respond to this great news about the trajectory of our eternal destiny in Christ, of this glorious destiny for all creation? Um, one little clue is tucked into verse 23. We who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we await our adoption. It's okay to still groan. It's okay to join your intercessions with the intercessions of the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit, the angels and the saints, according to the will of God, to turn those groanings into prayer, to join with God in his mission to redeem um, the world. If you've ever tasted of the presence of God, his love, his power, you know that those, those tastes, those foretastes, just makes you hungry for more. And that hunger is a good thing. It propels us forward in hope to all that God has for us. Um, so I would encourage you as we come to the table today to come prayerfully. What is that groaning? Is it a burden that you carry for um, someone in your family, for a, a nation, a people group? Is it for creation? Has God given you a great love for the created order? Where has the longing of the Holy Spirit intersected with the longing of your heart? Present that at the supper that we are about to receive at the Lord's table. The Eucharist is a recollection of the Last Supper, but it's also a foretaste of the marriage supper of the Lamb. When all of these yearnings, these longings in creation, these longings that we have on our own bodies, these longings that are in the heart of God at the marriage supper of the Lamb, all of these things are full and in their completion. Um, let me close with this and then I'll pray for us for just a moment. Just encourage you in your imagination to see this beautiful uh, point at the end of history. Uh, from chapter two of the book of Revelation, 22 of Revelation. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, the roar of, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. And it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Um, please pray with me. Thank you, Lord, that you have invited each of us to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we ask, Lord, that you would fill our imaginations with those intuitions of glory, of the fulfillment of all things. And Lord, we do ask that you would consecrate all of our suffering, that you would sanctify it, that it might draw us into closer intimacy with you, Lord Jesus Christ.
And I pray, Lord, that you would grant to us that spirit of adoption by, by which we might cry out to you, Abba, Father. Amen.